Book One, Chapters Eleven and Twelve of the Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. The Blue Lagoon by H. De Vere Stackpole. Part Two, Chapter Eleven, The Island. Childer shouted Paddy. He was at the cross trees in the full dawn, whilst the children standing beneath on deck were craning their faces up to him. There's an island furnitus. Hurrah! cried Dick. He was not quite sure what an island might be like in the concrete, but it was something fresh, and Paddy's voice was jubilant. Land ho it is, said he, coming down to the deck. Come forward to the bows, and I'll show it to you. He stood on the timber in the bows and lifted Emmeline up in his arms, and even at that humble elevation from the water she could see something of an undecided colour, green for choice, on the horizon. It was not directly ahead, but on the starboard bow, or, as she would have expressed it, to the right. When Dick had looked and expressed his disappointment at there being so little to see, Paddy began to make preparations for leaving the ship. It was only just now, with land in sight, that he recognised in some fashion the horror of the position from which they were about to escape. He fed the children hurriedly with some biscuits and tinned meat, and then, with a biscuit in his hand, eating as he went, he trotted about the decks, collecting things and stowing them in the dinghy. The bolt of striped flannel, all the old clothes, a housewife full of needles and thread, such as seamen sometimes carry, the half-sack of potatoes, a saw which he found in the caboose, the precious coil of tobacco, and a lot of other odds and ends he'd transshipped, sinking the little dinghy several strakes in the process. Also, of course, he took the breaker of water and the remains of the biscuit and tin stuff they had brought on board. These being stowed and the dinghy ready, he went forward with the children to the bow to see how the island was bearing. It had loomed up nearer during the hour or so in which he had been collecting and storing the things, nearer and more to the right, which meant that the brig was being borne by a fairly swift current, and that she would pass it, leaving two or three miles to starboard. It was well they had command of the dinghy. "'The sea's all around it,' said Emmeline, who was seated on Paddy's shoulder, holding on tight to him and gazing upon the island, the green of whose trees was now visible, an oasis of verdure in the sparkling and seraphic blue. "'Are we going there, Paddy?' asked Dick, holding on to a stay and straining his eyes toward the land. "'Hi, we are,' said Mr. Button. "'Hot foot! Five knots if we're making one, and it's a sure we'll be by noon, and maybe sooner.' The breeze had freshened up, and was blowing dead from the island, as though the island were making a weak attempt to blow them away from it. Oh, what a fresh and perfumed breeze it was! All sorts of tropical growing things had joined their scent in one bouquet. "'Smell it,' said Emmeline, expanding her small nostrils. "'That's what I smelt last night. Only it's stronger now." 
The last reckoning taken on board the Northumberland had proved the ship to be south by east of the Marquesas. This was evidently one of those small lost islands that lie here and there south by east of the Marquesas, islands the most lonely and beautiful in the world. As they gazed it grew before them and shifted still more to the right. It was hilly and green now, though the trees could not be clearly made out. Here the green was lighter in colour and there darker. A rim of pure white marble seemed to surround its base. It was foam breaking on the barrier reef. In another hour the feathery foliage of the coconut palms could be made out, and the old sailor judged it time to take to the boat. He lifted Emmeline, who was clasping her luggage, over the rail on to the channel, and deposited her in the stern-sheets. Then Dick. In a moment the boat was adrift, the mast steeped, and the Shenandoah left to pursue her mysterious voyage at the will of the currents of the sea. "'You're not going to the island, Paddy?' cried Dick, as the old man put the boat on the port tack. "'You be easy,' replied the other, "'and don't be learning your grandmother. How the devil do you think I'd fetch the land, sailing dead in the wind's eye?' "'Has the wind eyes?' Mr. Button did not answer the question. He was troubled in his mind. What if the island were inhabited? He had spent several years in the South Seas. He knew the people of the Marquesas and Samoa, and liked them, but here he was out of his bearings. However, all the troubling in the world was of no use. It was a case of the island or the deep sea, and putting the boat on the starboard tack he lit his pipe and leaned back with the tiller in the crook of his arm. His keen eyes had made out from the deck of the brig an opening in the reef, and he was making to run the dinghy abreast of the opening, and then to take to the sculls and row her through. Now, as they drew nearer, a sound came on the breeze. Sound faint and sonorous and dreamy. It was the sound of the breakers on the reef. The sea just here was heaving to a deeper swell as if it vexed in its sleep at the resistance to it of the land. Emmeline, sitting with her bundle in her lap, stared without speaking at the sight before her. Even in the bright, glorious sunshine, and despite the greenery that showed beyond, it was a desolate sight seen from her place in the dinghy. A white, forlorn beach over which the breakers raced and tumbled seagulls wheeling and screaming, and over all the thunder of the surf. Suddenly the break became visible, and a glimpse of smooth blue water beyond. Button unshipped the tiller, unstepped the mast, and took to the sculls. As they drew nearer the sea became more active, savage and alive. The thunder of the surf became louder, the breakers more fierce and threatening, the opening broader. One could see the water swirling round the coral piers, for the tide was flooding into the lagoon. It had seized the little dinghy, and was bearing it along far swifter than the skulls could have driven it. Seagulls screamed around them, 
the boat rocked and swayed, Dick shouted with excitement, and Emmeline shut her eyes tight. Then, as though a door had been swiftly and silently closed, the sound of the surf became suddenly less. The boat floated on an even keel. She opened her eyes and found herself in Wonderland. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 The Lake of Azure On either side lay a great sweep of waving blue water, calm almost as a lake, sapphire here, and here with the tints of the aquamarine, water so clear that fathoms away below you could see the branching coral, the schools of passing fish, and the shadows of the fish upon the spaces of sand. Before them the clear water washed the sands of the white beach, the cocoa-palms waved and whispered in the breeze, and as the oarsman lay on his oars to look, a flock of bluebirds rose, as if suddenly freed from the tree-tops, wheeled and passed soundless, like a wreath of smoke, over the tree-tops of the higher land beyond. "'Look!' shouted Dick, who had his nose over the side of the boat. "'Look at the fish!' "'Mr. Button,' cried Emmeline, "'where are we?' "'Bedad, I dunno, but we might be in a worse place, I'm thinking,' replied the old man, sweeping his eyes over the blue and tranquil lagoon, from the barrier reef to the happy shore. On either side of the broad beach before them the cocoa-nut trees came down like two regiments, and bending gazed at their own reflections in the lagoon. Beyond lay waving chaparral, where cocoa-palms and the breadfruit trees intermixed with the mammy-apple and the tendrils of the wild vine. On one of the piers of coral at the break of the reef stood a single cocoa-palm, bending with a slight curve. It, too, seemed seeking its reflection in the waving water. But the soul of it all, the indescribable thing about this picture of mirrored palm-trees, blue lagoon, coral reef and sky, was the light. Away at sea the light was blinding, dazzling, cruel. Away at sea it had nothing to focus itself upon, nothing to exhibit but infinite spaces of blue water and desolation. Here it made the air a crystal through which the gazer saw the loveliness of the land and reef, the green of palm, the white of coral, the wheeling gulls, the blue lagoon, all sharply outlined, burning, coloured, arrogant yet tender heart-breakingly beautiful, for the spirit of eternal morning was there, eternal happiness, eternal youth. As the oarsman pulled the tiny craft towards the beach, neither he nor the children saw, away behind the boat, on the water near the bending palm-tree at the break of the reef, something that for a moment insulted the day and was gone something like a small triangle of dark canvas that rippled through the water and sank from sight, something that appeared and vanished 
like an evil thought. It did not take long to beach the boat. Mr. Button tumbled over the side up to his knees in water, whilst Dick crawled over the bow. "'Catch hold of her, the same as I do!' cried Paddy, laying hold of the starboard gunwale, whilst Dick, imitative as a monkey, seized the gunwale to port, and then, "'Yo-ho, Chilliman! Up with her! Up with her! Heave-ho, Chilliman! Leave her be now! She's high enough!' He took Emmeline in his arms and carried her up on the sand. It was from just here on the sand that you could see the true beauty of the lagoon—that lake of sea-water forever protected from storm and trouble by the barrier reef of coral. Right from where the little clear ripples ran up the strand it led the eye to the break in the coral reef where the palm gazed at its own reflection in the water and there, beyond the break, one caught a vision of the great, heaving, sparkling sea. The lagoon just here was perhaps more than a third of a mile broad. I have never measured it, but I know that, standing by the palm-tree on the reef, flinging up one's arm and shouting to a person on the beach, the sound took a perceptible time to cross the water—I should say perhaps an almost perceptible time. The distant signal and the distant call were almost coincident, yet not quite. Dick, mad with delight at the place in which he found himself, was running about like a dog just out of the water. Mr. Button was discharging the cargo of the dinghy on the dry white sand. Emmeline seated herself with her precious bundle on the sand, and was watching the operations of her friend, looking at the things around her and feeling very strange. For all she knew, all this was the ordinary accompaniment of a sea voyage. Paddy's manner throughout had been set to the one idea—not to frighten the children. The weather had backed him up. But down in the heart of her lay the knowledge that all was not as it should be. The hurried departure from the ship, the fog in which her uncle had vanished, those things, and others as well, she felt instinctively were not right. But she said nothing. She had not long for meditation, however, for Dick was running towards her with a live crab which he had picked up, calling out that he was going to make it bite her. "'Take it away!' cried Emmeline, holding both her hands with fingers widespread in front of her face. Mr. Button, Mr. Button, Mr. Button!" "'Leave her be, ye little devil!' roared Pat, who was depositing the last of the cargo on the sand. "'Leave her be, or it's a hidin' I'll be givin' ye!' "'What's a divil, Paddy?' asked Dick, panting from his exertions. "'Paddy, what's a divil?' "'You're one. Ax no questions now, for it's tired I am and I want to rest me bones." He flung himself under the shade of a palm-tree, took out his tinder-box, tobacco and pipe, cut some tobacco up, filled his pipe, and lit it. Emmeline crawled up and sat near him, and Dick flung himself down on the sand near Emmeline. Mr. Button took off his coat and made a pillow of it against a coconut tree-stem. He had found the El Dorado of the Weary. 
With his knowledge of the South Seas, a glance at the vegetation to be seen told him that food for a regiment might be had for the taking—water, too. Right down the middle of the strand was a depression, which in the rainy season would be the bed of a rushing rivulet. The water just now was not strong enough to come all the way to the lagoon, but away up there beyond in the woods lay the source, and he'd find it in due time. There was enough in the breaker for a week, and green coconuts were to be had for the climbing. Emmeline contemplated Paddy for a while as he smoked and rested his bones. Then a great thought occurred to her. She took the little shawl from around the parcel she was holding, and exposed the mysterious box. "'Oh, begorra, the box!' said Paddy, leaning on his elbow interestedly. "'I might have known you wouldn't have forgot it.' "'Mrs. James,' said Emmeline, "'made me promise not to open it till I got on shore, for the things in it might get lost.' "'Well, you're on shore now,' said Dick. "'Open it.' "'I'm going to,' said Emmeline. She carefully undid the string, refusing the assistance of Paddy's knife. Then the brown paper came off, disclosing a common cardboard box. She raised the lid half an inch, peeped in, and shut it again. "'Open it!' cried Dick, mad with curiosity. "'What's in it, honey?' asked the old sailor, who was as interested as Dick. "'Things,' replied Emmeline. Then all at once she took the lid off, and disclosed a tiny tea-service of china, packed in shavings. There was a teapot with a lid, a cream-jug, cups and saucers, and six microscopic plates, each painted with a pansy. "'Sure, it's a tea-set,' said Paddy, in an interested voice. "'Glory be to God!' Would you look at the little plates with the flowers on them?" "'Heh!' said Dick, in disgust. "'I thought it might have been soldiers.' "'I don't want soldiers,' replied Emmeline, in a voice of perfect contentment. She unfolded a piece of tissue-paper, and took from it a sugar-tongs and six spoons. Then she arrayed the whole lot on the sand. "'Well, if that don't beat all! said Paddy. "'And when are you going to ask me to tay with you?' "'Sometime,' replied Emmeline, collecting the things and carefully repacking them. Mr. Button finished his pipe, tapped the ashes out, and placed it in his pocket. "'We'll be after rigging up a bit of a tent,' said he, as he rose to his feet, "'to shelter us from the dew to-night. But I'd first have a look at the woods to see if I can find water.' Leave your box with the other things, Emmeline. There's no one here to take it." Emmeline left her box on the heap of things that Paddy had placed in the shadow of the coconut trees, took his hand, and the three entered the grove on the right. It was like entering a pine forest. The tall, symmetrical stems of the trees seemed set by mathematical law, each at a given distance from the other. Whichever way you entered, a twilight alley set with tree-boles lay before you. Looking up, you saw at an immense distance above a pale green roof 
patterned with sparkling and flashing points of light, where the breeze was busy playing with the green fronds of the tree. "'Mr. Button,' murmured Emmeline, "'we won't get lost, will we?' "'Lost? No, faith! Sure, we're going uphill, and all we have to do is to come down again, when we want to get back. Where nuts?' A green nut detached itself from up above, came down rattling and tumbling, and hopped on the ground. Paddy picked it up. "'It's a green coconut,' said he, putting it in his pocket. It was not much bigger than a Jaffa orange. "'And we'll have it for tea.' "'That's not a coconut,' said Dick. "'Coconuts are brown. I had five cents once, and I bought one, and scraped it out, and yet it. When Dr. Sims made Dicky sick, said Emmeline, he said the wonder to him was how Dicky held it all. Come on, said Mr. Button, and don't be talking, or it's the chloricorns will be after us. What's chloricorns? demanded Dick. Little men no bigger than your thumb that make the brogues for the good people. Who's they? Wished and don't be talking. Mind your head, Emlyn, or the branches'll be hitting you in the face." They had left the coconut grove and entered the chaparral. Here was a deeper twilight, and all sorts of trees lent their foliage to make the shade. The artu, with its delicately diamond trunk, the great breadfruit, tall as a beech and shadowy as a cave, the aoa and the eternal coconut-palm all grew here like brothers. Great ropes of wild vine twined like the snake of the laocoon from tree to tree, and all sorts of wonderful flowers, from the orchid shaped like a butterfly to the scarlet hibiscus, made beautiful the gloom. Suddenly Mr. Button stopped. Whisht! said he. Through the silence, a silence filled with the hum and the murmur of wood insects and the faint, far song of the reef, came a tinkling, rippling sound. It was water. He listened to make sure of the bearing of the sound, then he made for it. Next moment they found themselves in a little grass-grown glade. From the hilly ground above, over a rock, black and polished like ebony, fell a tiny cascade not much broader than one's hand. Ferns grew around, and from a tree above a great rope of wild convolvulus flowers blew their trumpets in the enchanted twilight. The children cried out at the prettiness of it, and Emmeline ran and dabbled her hands in the water. Just above the little waterfall sprang a banana tree, laden with fruit. It had immense leaves, six feet long and more, and broad as a dinner-table. One could see the golden glint of the ripe fruit through the foliage. In a moment Mr. Button had kicked off his shoes, and was going up the rock like a cat, absolutely, for it seemed to give him nothing to climb by. "'Hurroo!' cried Dick, in admiration. "'Look at Paddy!' Emmeline looked, and saw nothing but swaying leaves. "'Stand from under!' he shouted, and the next moment down came a huge bunch of yellow jacketed bananas. 
Dick shouted with delight. But Emmeline showed no excitement. She had discovered something. End of chapter 12